Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording UFO activity. And they're in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is John Stevenson. On tonight's show, we have Jeff Ballinger. Also, we'll be discussing the Coral Castle with Joe Bollard. That and much more on Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio on UFO-Info.com. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. With us now is Jeff Ballinger, author, speaker, paranormal investigator. Jeff is said to be one of the most visible paranormal researchers today. Author of over a dozen books, Jeff has also appeared on hundreds of radio and TV shows talking about the supernatural, and he's the founder of GhostVillage.com, the web's most popular paranormal destination. I'd like to welcome you to the show today, Jeff, and how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Oh, very good. Glad you could have you on. Hey, we're yeah. great. Thanks for being on. No, my pleasure. It's, uh, it's nice to be anywhere. Hey, my first and number one question for you is, Jeff, what got you involved in the paranormal? Yeah, that's um, that's that's a that's something that I get asked a lot. It's <laughs> it's I I grew up I grew up around it. I grew up in an old New England town, and I had friends from a young age who were just very interested uh, in the subject because their house was haunted. Mine was not, but theirs was. So um, we would have sleepovers and break out the Ouija board and try to make contact with whatever might be there and. What really got me gripped was that these weren't like Hollywood ghost stories where blood was dripping out of the walls or anything like that. It was just a matter of fact, yes, yeah, someone else lives here with us and we can't see him all the time, but there he is. And I was just intrigued. And then uh, growing up, I, I also lived in the town next to Ed and Lorraine Warren, so I knew them since I was 10 years old. And uh, certainly they had an influence. And I went to school to be a writer, a journalist, and I got hooked. I'm sure much like uh, Michael, you know, you, you get hooked on researching the history and finding out sometimes it backs up some of these these many ghostly legends. Yes, definitely. That's actually cool. That's exactly how I started, too, pretty much, except for Lorraine Warren. She wasn't my neighbor, but otherwise it's almost <laughs> identical. <laughs> well, I found there's two types of people in the paranormal, ones that have been interested their entire lives and ones that got interested after they watched Ghost Adventures yeah. or Ghost Hunters. <laughs> right, yeah. No, that's true. And, and, and um, but, but, you know, there's something about this subject that speaks to all of us on a very primal level. I mean, we're, we're talking about the big question here, you know, is there life after death? That's really what we're pursuing. Uh, and and it's, a, it's an individual question, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm finding my answers, but I know those answers don't apply to everybody. And, and I think that's part of the draw for this subject, whether you're, you know, eight or nine years old or whether you're 30 or 40 years old and just getting into it now. Yeah, there's a lot. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. It's a huge subject right now. I mean, I've been interested like you my whole life, but now it's like mainstream. Everybody seems to be interested in it. Well, that's cool because it, it, it takes the subject out of the closet and you're allowed to discuss it a lot more openly. And that's the that's the really great thing about how popular it is, is that, um, you know, even 10 years ago, 
if you're standing by the office water cooler going, man, I think my house is haunted and I'm going to have some people come <laughs> yeah. out, you're worried about getting fired. And, exactly. Uh, and today your boss may invite himself over and ask if his ghost hunting group can come check it out. Exactly. <laughs> I've actually talked about, I've overheard people talking and I've mentioned that, you know, I'm involved in this. And instead of being shunned like you used to be, now you're like, you know, wow, really? And they all, everybody wants to talk to you. I'm like, wow, has that changed throughout the years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool though. You know, you said you used to play with the Ouija board. I used to do too, and I've had bad experiences with that. What's your view on those things? Yeah, uh, I think there's nothing inherently evil about cardboard and plastic. Uh huh. And, and and I think there's no difference whatsoever between a Ouija board, doing EVP, doing dowsing rods, doing pendulums, um, seances of any kind. You are invoking a spirit. You're saying wherever you are, whatever you are, come to where I am, and let's try to communicate. Right. The difference is the Ouija board has a stigma to it. And it has a stigma thanks to a couple of people. One is um, William Peter Blatty, who wrote a wonderful book called The Exorcist, which was made into a, a right. great, great horror movie. And one of those other people are the Warrens, who for years would um, ask people, I, I've stood in her house, I've heard the phone ring, and, and she starts talking, and one the half of the conversation I could hear goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, hon, oh that sounds bad. Yeah, <laughs> listen, tell me, is there a Ouija board in the house, hon? Oh, you gotta get rid of it. <laughs> okay. It, it, and and now the the adult in me kind of laughs. It's did you know in 1967 the Ouija board outsold Monopoly? I did it. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. So uh, so that means that if um, you know if if you if you take into account that oh, sorry man got a phone ringing here we'll just ignore it. That's okay. <laughs> um, but if you take into account how many people have a Monopoly board in their house, if you said oh geez it's haunted, is there a Monopoly in the house? All oh right. my god, there is a Monopoly board in my house. <laughs> Right. No. Are you psychic? Well, there's there's millions of these things in circulation, and and so that's um you know that's something we have to we have to figure that it's it's omnipresent because it is so popular. I just don't believe that there's demons waiting in line and, and uh you know right right down the aisle there at Toys R Us saying come on, yeah. don't stratego, don't well, pick up the game. get the Ouija board. <laughs> well, I've yeah. I've had I've heard numerous stories, but it's a first-hand thing. I I grew up in a psychic family, and my mother used to play with the Ouija board, and it got to a point where she had bad things happening, and she found out the people she was talking to who wasn't who she thought they were, and it was a terrible experience. And my mom's sure. like, stay away from those things, no matter what. And I wasn't allowed to have one. And being a normal 16-year-old kid, what do you do when your mom says you can't have one? Well, you go out and get one. I came sure. home. Had one in my trunk wrapped up so she couldn't see it. I was going to bring it in the house later. I go to the door. My mom's like, you got another one. I told you not to. I'm like, what? She goes, as soon as you pulled in the driveway, the voices were back in my head saying, we can talk again now. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. And I get to, you know, I also accept the possibility that you're using this board and not communicating with spirits at all. You're communicating with your subconscious. You're communicating with your... Your, your lower self, your higher self, whatever that may be. I accept all those as possibilities. Right. Um, but I also believe, you know, you're opening a doorway, whether you're using that or EVP or talking to a K2 meter or, or anything else. You truly don't know what's over there. Uh, and if you feel that that's dangerous, then you should probably stay away from all of it. Right. Um, and and it's it's interesting that the Ouija board gets the stigma that it does. But it's that's that's a lot of factors. You know, it's it's ooey, yeah. it's ooey, it's... Um, it's freakish, but um, it, not that I really use them as part of my regular investigations, but when I do events, I do bring one along, an old 1960s board from Salem, Massachusetts, 
And um, I, I bring that along because it tends to freak people out. And that's interesting to me. Oh, that's cool. We started off here a little bit on the heavy side. <laughs> oh, that's right. You got anything well, here to ask now, Mike? Yeah, as I understand it, you recently got back from an event at Slater Mill. Is that a, a haunted place? Yeah, Slater Mill is really interesting. It's the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution. Um, <clears throat> it was built in the 1790s by Samuel Slater. I'm right assuming on, that's somewhere in New England. Yeah, sorry, uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And um, it's built right on the Pawtucket River. Uh, and and just, just an amazing story. It's a lot of child labor. A lot of children were killed there. Uh, this is back when kids were seen as completely expendable, and these water-powered machines were, were pulling cotton into thread and string and fabric and things like that. And there's actually three buildings. There's the Slater Mill, the Wilkinson Mill, and the Sylvanus Brown House, just great old historic New England haunts, and um, all three of them seem to be active. So, uh, it, I, you know, I love that. I love when you're, you're literally touching history, you know, exploring these things with, um, you know, with different types of people. And it's always interesting to me where... You're, you're in a, you might be in a group of 15, 20 people, and one person has this profound experience, and you're standing right next to him, and you don't. And, and that's when you start to realize, I don't think we can ever prove the paranormal to everybody because it's such an individualized thing. I've stood next to people. I'm not calling them liars. They were shaken up visibly by something, mm -hmm. but I didn't see it, feel it, experience it, or any other way. And there's been times where I've felt weird stuff, and others haven't. So exactly. it's kind of this, uh, this individualized thing. Well, I found that a lot of ghost stories, especially in these historic places, have a lot to to tell us about history and a lot to uh, to as a reminder of what what took place in the past. There, even though people might have forgotten about it, they still have the ghost stories to tell. Absolutely, and I've I've you know I've said this before, but you know, ghosts in one sense are simply history demanding to be remembered. And you take a place like Gettysburg, where you've got tens of thousands dead, wounded, or missing in the span of three days in July of 1863, and it's haunted because it should be haunted. It, it's, it's haunted, and President Abraham Lincoln noted that it was haunted in the, in the Gettysburg Address. He said, flat out, we cannot hollow this ground. These brave men who, who died here did that far beyond our, our ability to add or detract. And it's true. It's haunted and haunting when you go there. We need to remember what took place. We need to be reminded that our country can get torn apart. Uh, and that's just one of the many, you know, many masters that ghosts can serve. Yeah, so you've written about haunted places all over the United States, and I'm sure you get asked this question all the time. But what do you think is the most haunted place in the United States? The bathroom at this New Jersey rest area. <laughs> <laughs> insanely evil uh, no i am um, <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's it's impo it's an impossible question to answer of course uh, plus I've it changes my, too yeah right i mean i've got my favorite haunts and those tend to be places where i've had personal experiences they're few well, where, what are some of those yeah one would be uh, waverly hills sanatorium in louisville kentucky yeah i've been there too that's an intense place i don't care what people say about it it's pretty freaky yeah, totally. I mean, you, you walk in there, and I'm I'm not psychic sensitive or otherwise in any way, shape, or form. And I walked into that building the first time. I just went, "Oh my God, this place is haunted." You know, you just you just exactly. There. Yeah, and uh, walking around, I had an experience there, and uh, my first experience actually happened in Paris, France, when I saw a shadow figure. But I was completely alone, and so even my my skeptical logical mind today can say, "Well, were you overtired? Were you this? Were you that?" I don't think I was. 
But at Waverly Hills, I was standing with three other people. We all saw the same thing. We all reacted the same way. A man stepped out of a room 15 feet in front of us, three doors down on the left, looked at us and stepped back in. And we all raced to the room. We said, okay, wait a minute. We know we're alone up here, but maybe someone slipped by somehow. And I accept that as a possibility. But what I do not accept as a possibility is that if someone did slip by the first time, that they could have got out uh, once we saw them because we closed on that location looking every which way in three seconds. And um, mm-hmm. no one could have got back out if they did get in. And you go, you look at each other and you say, all right, we all saw it. We all reacted. We all described the same thing. Um, amazing. And, and, and that's those are the experiences that I admit I continue to chase. They're, they're incredible. They're, they're life-altering. And uh, it's why I keep doing this. I want to have that experience again. Exactly. It gives you just a complete rush. It's like when people skydive and that kind of stuff. It's the same kind of effect. Absolutely. Totally right. I, I wanted to ask, what did you think about Ashmore Estates? I know you had to do a little bit of research for that, for the Ghost Adventure show, correct? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's... um. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, Mr. Michael Clean was on that show, wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> That's why Mike brought that up. He likes to yeah. hear about himself. <laughs> yeah. I like to relate it back, you know. <laughs> Enough about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> I get it. No, that's cool. Yeah, no, Ashmore Estates is, you know, the old poor farm out there. And poor farms are interesting stories. They're, they're very similar. I've, I've researched a few poor farms, uh, Rolling Hills in upstate New York and... Um, Oh, God, the one there in western Pennsylvania, it's escaping me. Hillview Manor um, is another one where you, you had this this time period where, um, you know, state laws came down and said you must care for your poor. And the idea was that these poor farms would be self-sufficient. They would grow their own food, sew their own clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and you know, no one would have to, um, you know, no, no one would have to outside would have to lose any money or, or time or effort working on them. And of course, they became a place for the mentally ill, um, people who might have been borderline criminals, the unwanted, just really sad, tragic stories. And, and it tugs at your heartstrings to think about these kinds of places. So, I, you know, Ashmore, really interesting, really tragic. What do you think, Michael? I mean, you've been there a lot more than, than any of us, and you've done more research into it. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that it's it's a really great place, and you're right. It has a lot of that that tragic history. Uh, I think that people have gotten a little bit carried away. I'm I'm not going to say it's not haunted, right? But I think people have gotten a little bit carried away with how haunted it is. <laughs> I mean, there are people out there who tell you it's the most haunted building in the entire state of Illinois. You know, exactly. And I, I, <laughs> I've I've been there dozens of times alone and with other people and I, I you know I've never experienced anything in there, yeah. but that doesn't mean that no one else has either. Well, some people just actually don't experience things. Though I'm sure Jeff yeah, can I, tell I you that too. Some people, anything. no matter what, have no effect or no feelings towards any of this. Hey, and, and that's you know here's the thing though it's not fair and that's why you said like what's the most haunted place in the United States? It's not fair to judge. I've been to the Stanley Hotel six or seven times in Estes Park, uh, Estes Park Colorado now. And I've never had a personal experience there. But I've watched people get freaked out and, and, oh, my gosh, it's the most haunted place on earth, even though I've never had an experience. It's not fair for me to judge that just because I missed, you know, just because I was in, not in the right place at the right time. Um, and, in, and someone else may have gone to Waverly Hills the night that I had, you know, really two experiences, one really big, the one I just told you about, and, and said, no, no, this place isn't haunted at all. I've experienced nothing here. That's why it's such an individualized thing. Now, I also get that some of these places really, um, you know, pay their mortgage, rent, etc. 
uh, with their ghosts. And oh, exactly. Waverly Hills does. Of course, of course, you know, and, and so, so, um, you know, no one wants to go to the most moderately haunted building in the county. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, you know, people tend to say this is the most haunted place on earth. And, uh, that's, there's lots of places that say that. Yeah. Quite Dang. a few. They can't all be the most haunted. I mean, you can, yeah, that's right. that's right. <laughs> you can have second, third and runner up, but not all the most. <laughs> yeah. And who decides anyway, you know, I mean, shoot. yeah, there's really no scale of haunting from, th- you know, one end to the other. I think Michael clean decides all this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, your opinion's as good as anyone else. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, but you, you go somewhere and, and, you know, your, your, your head spins around and you get thrown against the wall. You're going to say, this is the most haunted <laughs> place on earth, even though I may go there tomorrow and see nothing at all, but butterflies, you know? Exactly. Well, I'll tell you when you get out here to Chicago again, Jeff, like we were talking off air, I'll, I'll take you to bachelor's Grove. You said you've never been there. That's one you got to no. experience. Yeah. I would love to. That's another place where I've been at least a dozen times and nothing has ever happened to me. Did you ever think maybe you're a repellent, Michael? <laughs> I think I am. I, I really, you know, some people think they're sensitive. I'm I'm the you're, opposite. You're anti-sensitive. Yeah. You're insensitive. Yeah. Yeah, hasn't well, your girlfriend said that before, Mike? Oh. <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, you have written and researched for Ghost Adventures, but you were also involved with the TV show Paranormal Challenge, yeah, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about the premise of that show for those of our audience who haven't seen it. And, uh, you know, what do you like about the program? Yeah, that was a, that was a, um, uh, Zach, Zach Bagans from uh, Ghost Adventures um, developed that. This was a show that uh, was filmed and ran last year. And uh, it, was, it, it was one season, but it was, the idea was to take, uh, two different teams and bring them to some of the you know renowned haunts that Ghost Adventures had been to before, um, and and put them in there and see what they experience and and kind of have them compete against each other. Um, I know it was a bit controversial, you know, because teams are thinking, well, we shouldn't be competing against each other, and I get that, but I also get TV, and you know, um, much like a cooking show, this was the um, this was kind of how we've explained it to people. You know, you watch some of these cooking shows. Both chefs make a really great meal, but at the end of the day, you gotta you gotta dub one the winner. And so that's um, that's kind of yeah. how how it went. If I, if I wanted to watch a show where people were cooperating, I'd watch PBS. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's totally right. Yeah, and and so it was it was really interesting to see so many different teams. You know, some teams who obviously were thrilled at the shot at being on television. That was pretty obvious. Yes. And, and and you know what and and others that were so serious that they weren't as entertaining to watch however they were a lot more thorough um in their investigation and it was it's intriguing because that really is a true cross section of the paranormal there are people that start groups because they figure like well we'll start a group and we'll have our own reality show in a year or two i'm sure yep. yeah they all get matching t-shirts that, that's kind yeah. of a running joke in here we talk about someone starts a group you get matching shirts and hats and wow you're a famous group all of a sudden <laughs> No, and, and you know what's funny? I um, I used to get frustrated by that too, but I really don't anymore. I, I actually think it's all kind of cool. Um, you know, that if people want to get into this to start start some kind of social club, why not? Who am I to judge? Some people join bowling leagues, you know, and and for the same reason. So what? I mean, if you're having fun and doing something with it, wear the matching shirts. Right. I mean, it's I I actually have well, no problem. Yeah, with we're it. not saying there's anything wrong with it. I just say it's kind of yeah, funny. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's the first thing well, they do instead of going out and getting all their equipment. You know, they get T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. And you know, I used to I used to laugh about that too. But then I thought, um, 
you know, when, when there, there actually is a pretty good argument for the matching T-shirts, if you think about it. If you're, if you're taking photographs and you get an anomalous photo where you say, oh, my gosh, there's someone in a white dress. Well, you know, your team always wears the same black T-shirt to an investigation. So exactly. It's, a, it's no one in your team, you know, wearing the white dress. So anyway, I get it. But, um, but no, people come to this for so many reasons, and it's not fair for me to judge those those reasons you know someone wants to really turn this into science and do you know controlled experiments that's awesome someone else wants to just go legend tripping and you know traipse through black bachelor's grove cemetery and see if they experience something and have a story to tell that's cool too you know and there's all of us in between well it's true i mean all it is is it's a hobby it's you just do it to entertain yourself basically whether you're extremely serious or not totally it's like when you watch me play golf you know i mean it's <laughs> You know, first of all, it ain't happening unless there's a six pack in me. And, and, and if you're a serious golfer, you're going to loathe golfing with me because I'm going to drive the cart over your ball. And I'm going <laughs> to exactly I'm going to quote Caddyshack pretty much the entire time. You know, it's, it's which is just infuriating for someone who's really trying to break the club record or whatever. But I'm like, I'm not that good, nor do I want to be, you know. Mm. I'm guilty of that, too. I don't play golf. I don't attempt to play golf. <laughs> yeah, right. Too expensive. I can't afford it. Exactly. Uh, I was going to ask you something a little bit back towards the paranormal side again, Jeff. What's your uh, view on orbs? I, I try to touch on this with everybody that knows stuff. Every orb that you've ever seen is a demon from hell. <laughs> Can I quote that? I think I'll use yes. that for, we'll use that on the show like all the time yeah. for a sound bit. <laughs> Your show's logo, I can actually see like one, two, three, four, five, six demons from hell right in your show logo right now. Well, they actually are there. You're very receptive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, those are demons easily. I can tell because they're round. What Those are called producers. <laughs> oh, all right. No, so, um, no, I, I think um, it's, it's so interesting that orbs are getting in vogue to talk about again they went away for a while i thought we were done with them but um they came back I, when they first started when i first started doing this um in in the uh you know mid to late 1990s orbs were everywhere and this yeah, was also was a big time, deal yeah no they were everywhere and this was a time when 1.3 megapixel digital cameras were coming out and that those were the good ones you know exactly um, yeah and, and and orbs are showing up in almost every photo and and you know, the Walmart was haunted, the McDonald's <laughs> kids party was haunted. Um, really, so I got intrigued by this, and I, and I did as much research as I could. I learned that in the 1980s, uh, orbs and photos were considered by ufologists to be extraterrestrial energy. Exactly. Um, and so in the late 90s, early 2000s, the ghost people stole them and <laughs> turned them into spirits. And, uh, and then so I talked to camera manufacturers. I talked to professional photographers. I, I went to Kodak, who, who made the camera that I had at the time. And I didn't say anything about ghosts. I just said, hey, I took this picture. Tell me what this is. And I got really, really good, thorough explanations, you know, um, that, that ca cameras have, you know, between four and seven lenses that are correcting for light. Most of the time, it's lens flare. And even if there's not some shiny, sunny object in the, the photo, it can be outside of the field of vision reflecting and refracting off of all those lenses and putting the lens flare, which is just like in your threshold radio logo. Right. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's that kind of effect. They can be big. They can be small. Um, and also, you know, your, your camera's doing its best to fill in all those pixels. And so people find faces. But in reality, you know, sometimes that's just your camera guessing and, and we – it's called pareidolia where we, we make shapes out of trees right. and clouds. Or matrixing like, to the same thing. Yeah, right. And so um, I think 99.999999999% of orbs can be dismissed 
And the only reason I don't say it's 100% is because um, some people see glowing balls of light with their naked eye. And I've seen a video clip that's that's a long, long video clip. We're talking like five or six seconds, which is uh-huh. uh, where you see in a, on a closed-circuit television in a backyard in uh, Colorado these two moving balls of light going around, lighting up the trees as they pass by and, 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 you know, kind of making their way through this, this person's backyard. And I said, okay, if you had a still camera and took a photo of that, okay, I'll grant you that's an orb, but it's producing its own light. And that I've seen like two, three times ever, as opposed to 6 trillion other photos that I would say are dust moisture, you know, a, a little piece of dust too close to your camera lens is, is going to turn into this cloudy bubble, um, you know, when, when, when your camera tries to process it, even good ones. So um, if all you have is an orb photo, I would say, what else you got? We're on the same yeah. page there. I'm exactly 99.92 and same thing. Plus, when you go to these paranormal places, they're usually very, very old buildings, which in turn are filled with dust. Yeah, there's sure. a lot of dust. And I, I did an experiment once where I took a picture in kind of a, a dusty area and uh, when it was raining and I even took a picture of a light that was on in the distance and I showed them to a bunch of people and people who were into the paranormal they all said wow oh my god you know there's some demonic energy in here or there's all these ghosts and everything and that's right about the time that I became very skeptical about any pictures that I see. Yeah, no, it, it, but you know, the other thing too is uh, and, um, my friend Patrick Burns does this great experiment. He, he videotapes it and plays it in some of his lectures where he says, okay, watch, we're going to make ghosts. And he grabs a tissue, you know, out of the, out of the tissue box and he rubs, rubs, rubs it together, grabs his camera, clicks a picture and he goes, look, full of ghosts, you know, uh-huh. and, 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 you know, uh, on demand. Now, here's the other thing I noticed, too, because years ago, people would show me their ghost photos, that, and, and there, there's lots of orbs, and, I w- and they would say, well, what do you think this is? And I'd go, oh, look, you know, come on, you're in a dusty old building, it's this, it's that. It's, and then they would look at me just indignantly and say, are you kidding, you insensitive jerk? It's my Uncle Larry. Oh, uh, exactly. Yeah, I, just, I just got that the other day at an it, appearance. It's so, um, and so now whenever anyone shows me any kind of ghostly photo, um, my answer is always the same. What do you think it is? And right. if they say, it's my Uncle Larry, I go, okay, well, that's, that's fine. Um, because who am I to judge a sign? You know, some people find pennies on the ground and swear it's from their grandfather who died years ago and used to always give the kids pennies. Mm-hmm. And, and me, I say, well, people don't bother to bend over to pick up a penny anymore. Although in this economy, maybe they do. Yeah, but, we, we do now. You know, I speak for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean? So, so, so for them, it's a spiritual sign. And I, and I, you know, I, I've kind of matured over this whole thing over the years. It's the same way I would never look at a, a cross or a star of David or a crescent and, you know, around someone's neck and say, oh, that's the wrong religion. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, who would I be to say that? And and so um, so the orb photos. All I all I can do is say, hey, if you think it's something, then you know I'm not going to argue with you. However, if that's the only piece of evidence you have, it's it's really not enough for me. I've had that happen too on the website. People will send me stuff and ask me what my view is, and I'll I'll point out like the differential ring around the outer edge, which shows that it's actually not you know it's an environmental orb and not an energy ghost orb or anything. And uh, they'll leave the website. They'll quit. Because yeah, I don't give them the answer they want. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I don't ever, um, you know, I don't comment on any photos sent to me anymore. Um, just because I don't know. If, if I'm not there when the picture's taken, I, I can't pick it apart. 
Um, if you know, especially if it was taken, you know, thousands of miles away from where I am right now, I can't right. even go there. I can't try to reproduce it. All I can say is that's really interesting. Assuming you're not photoshopping me or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are really intriguing. Um, but unless I'm there when it was taken and can and can look at it and say, oh my god, I can promise you that was not there. Um, you know, it, it's just it's inconclusive, which so much of the paranormal is. Well, you have a book coming out in paperback in August called Who's Haunting the White House, the Do President's I? Mansion, and Ghosts <laughs> Who Live There. Yes, uh, according to Amazon.com, it's coming out in paperback. Awesome. In August. Uh, so, so tell us, who is haunting the White House, and does the Secret Service need to get involved? The Secret Service is involved. That's what's so cool. <laughs> they um, really are? I mean, you're serious? I'm deadly serious. This is an amazing place. Uh, that first... I wrote that book a few years ago um, during the Bush administration. I, I called them up and I said, I want to do a children's book about the ghosts of the White House. And they said, yeah, we're really not interested in that. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, I understand. I said, but I think we can use ghosts as an innovative way to teach history. And they said, go on. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> I got them now. So with the help from my congressman, believe it or not, um, I, I got in there, I got a tour, I got to interview the chief usher, who's the boss of the building. I mean, this guy has been working in the White House, he was, he retired a couple years ago, uh, since 1967 and served every president since Nixon, and has spent more time in that building than any president, even a two-term president. You know, they take vacations, they travel a lot, this guy's put in more hours than any president. And he's got a story, and he's not the only one. And here's what's wonderful about the, the witnesses at the White House. They're so credible. These guys are drug tested, psychologically screened, background checked eight ways to Sunday because there's about 100 employees who work for that building. And it doesn't matter who's president, Republican, Democrat, it makes no difference. These folks are the, the cleaning crew, the foreman, the, you know, the butlers, etc. that keep that building, museum and home running. And when they say they saw something, that's just a great witness. This guy's former Secret Service. I'm walking around, and, and I talked to a Secret Service agent who's telling me some of the history of the building. And I said, I, you know, I heard it's haunted. He said, yes, sir. Uh, there's a British red coat that's been spotted out near the North Portico. And there's uh, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln that's seen upstairs near the Lincoln bedroom. And I said, you, you your voice is so matter of fact. I said, is this kind of like federal recognition of ghosts? And he said, sir, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> And, and yet, you know, we, uh, I spoke to a foreman who said he was walking down early one morning, turning on the lights, and there's Abraham Lincoln sitting on a chair right outside of the Lincoln bedroom, made eye contact with him, folded his hands, and then disappeared. And he came downstairs and, and told one of the assistant ushers, and they said, you're one of many who have seen it. Um, Lincoln's ghost comes up again and again and again. And I think there's a number of reasons, and, you know, we can get into theories, whether it's residual, whether it's the living people that hold him there. But Lincoln had the hardest presidency of all of them. There's not even a, a close second. You know, he his son died while he was in the White House. Um, his nation was at war with itself, the Civil War. And, of course, he paid the ultimate price for, you know, for the office. He was assassinated. So no president had it as rough as Lincoln did. And I've heard other presidents quoted saying, you know, they were new in office. And I remember George Bush, the senior, saying, I had to send some troops into harm's way. And I was, you know, really having a lot of anxiety over it. And I thought about Abraham Lincoln and what he went through. And uh, it gave me some peace to know that, you know, he, he made a lot tougher decisions than I had to make right now. And, uh, and, and so you wonder, do these, these presidents kind of hold him there? And so lots of presidents have talked about the ghosts. Harry S. Truman wrote about the ghosts something like six or seven different times in letters to his wife. 
Those are all public record. Um, it comes up again and again. And this is the White House, man. No door is supposed to open or close without it being, you know, checked in triplicate by lots of, you know, high ranking people with, you know, top level clearance. And yet they see these ghosts. They have these experiences. And um, and so I just thought it, it's an amazing building. It was uh, incredible to be there and talk to some of the staff and and see some of the, you know, some of the places where every single president once walked. Um, except, of course, George Washington, who died before it was finished. But still, he laid the cornerstone. He, he was on the grounds. He approved the, approved the plans for the place. It's just an incredible place and an amazing haunt. That sounds like a great book. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, do you have any other paranormal-related questions? Uh, no, I had one question for you, Jeff. It says that you're the most visible paranormal researcher of today. And does that mean that you like wear a neon or something? I didn't quite catch yes. that. <laughs> I'm trying not to wear not to wear black so much. Okay. So you blend in with black. Yeah, actually, I'm guilty of that. I wear black every publicity shot. I'm always wearing black. There you go. See, start step it out. Start wearing whites and greens and blues and yellows. Uh, so, is there anything else? Hawaiian shirt. Hawaii. There you go. Anything else you wanted to say in closing here, Jeff? No, I just, you know, I, I'm, I appreciate the discussion. I think that it's important that we talk about all of this stuff because it touches on so many parts of the human experience. You know, we're talking about psychology, sociology, history, uh, spirituality, religion, maybe even physics. Uh, you know, all of these, these subjects collide in this amazing topic of ghosts and, and the paranormal. And to pursue it is to, is to seek out really big answers. And I think that's pretty awesome and noble. And, uh, and worth doing. And so, um, you know, radio shows like yours and, and you know, Michael, I know your books and things like that. It's, it's important that we keep doing this because all of this stuff is a part of who we are, a part of our history, our culture, our religion, everything. And uh, to ignore it is um, it would be the biggest tragedy. So I'm just I'm grateful that we got to talk about it. Well, thank you, Jeff. You've been well said. so you've been very entertaining too. And and keep us in mind. Anything comes up or any new information, uh, just get a hold of us. We'll put you right back on the air again. Well, I already told you, orbs are demons, and we broke up. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you told everybody about my demons on my logo, too. Darn it, now I have right. to kill you now. <laughs> yeah, or, or you know, exercise them with Photoshop. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, well, thank you for coming on, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. All right, that was Jeff Ballinger. We'll be right back listening to Thresholds Radio. Listening to Thresholds Radio on UFO-info.com. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. Up next, we'll be exploring the mysteries of the Coral Castle with investigative researcher Joe Bullard. Like a welcome to the show today, Joe. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great, John, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, this Coral Castle thing we're going to be talking tonight, I think um, your listeners, if they've never heard this tale, um, just kick back, and uh, this is like a trip through Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. Exactly. The Coral Castle is uh, amazing. I think it's on par with... Uh, 
Egyptian pyramids. It's just no one really knows about it that much. It's it, it's crazy, actually. It should be more well-known. Right from the get-go, why don't you just explain what it is for people that have no idea? Okay. Um, this tale actually begins in Latvia. Now, Latvia is one of the Baltic states. Um, you have Lithuania and Estonia, and it borders Russia. Now, Ed was 26 years old when this happened. He was in Latvia. Ed was sickly as a child. He never, he never had the. Um, I don't know if it was it was like an emphysema type thing, or he just had allergies and this type thing. He never was a strong person. He was sort of sickly, and Ed fell in love with a girl named Agnes Scuffs. She was 16. And um, Ed had actually had to quit school in the fourth grade because he just couldn't attend the, uh, the the school days enough. So they took him out of school, and he actually started apprenticing as a stonecutter with his grandfather. Now, later on, he and his grandfather opened a gravestone business where they actually cut the stones and engraved them, and this was where he learned his stonecutting business. Well, he and Agnes had been engaged for about a year, I guess, and the night before the wedding, for no really good reason. She never told him really why. She jilted him the night before the wedding. Now, Ed was the type person, as I said, he had never dated very many people. Agnes was the love of his life, and um, Ed just kind of flipped out, John. He he took off, and he said, I've got to get out of Latvia. I've got to get her out of my mind. So Ed took off for Europe, got on a ship, and he went all through Europe traveling around. Then he came back, and I have two theories now. Some people have said that he got off the boat in New, uh, New York at the uh, Staten Island uh, immigration place and came through. Other people have documented evidence that he got off in Oregon uh, from Canada, that he walked all the way through Canada and came down through California, Texas, uh, right on into Florida. Now, the strange thing about Ed, Ed as a child, as I said, he was sickly but he was a fantastic reader. Now, he read books on Atlantis, on magnetism, on the Egyptians, on the Peruvians, everything that he could get his hands on about Stonehenge, the Great Pyramids, the Mayans. He just absorbed himself into these books, and he became an expert in, in Egyptian mythology and Stonehenge and how these pyramids were actually built. Now, as a child, um, John, we were talking about it earlier, and you asked me about how I got interested in this. I had always, as a child, been a, a fan of the Great Pyramid and Stonehenge, and I never accepted that theory that slaves dragging stones up an incline were able to build the Great Pyramid because, as you know, some of those stones in the Great Pyramid actually weigh 100 tons. Now, Ed's Coral Castle, his blocks actually weigh two times as much as the Great Pyramid. Now, Everything Ed did at Coral Castle was planned. Everything in there, there's usually a clue behind how he did it. Not exactly clear, but everything, even including the weight of the stones and the reason that he did them twice as heavy as the Great Pyramid was he wanted you to believe that he understood the secret lost science behind the cutting and lifting of these stones. Which apparently okay. he did, if you ask me. I mean, wasn't his biggest stone, was it 30 tons, wasn't it, the heaviest? It 30 tons. In the North Tower, there's a 30-ton stone. It was his greatest accomplishment. Um, so what happens is when, when Ed is jilted, he, he comes to, to Canada. Now, he actually spends four years in Canada 
okay? He works in a lumber uh, mill there, and he's cutting trees and sawing the trees and making the, the boards and everything. Well, he gets sickly up there in Canada, the cold weather. Now, he takes a dowsing rod, which some people in the South call it a witching rod. It's actually a Y-shaped um, oak sapling, if you will. And some people who have the dowsing technique can go along the ground there, and when the water hits the stick, for some reason, we, we believe, John, that it's an electromagnetic force. But, you know, that rod or that stick will actually go down to where their water is. Well, now, Ed was always searching for water. Now, I actually talked to a gentleman um, way back in, I guess he was in the 30s, or no, before that, when Ed was coming into Florida, um, must have been around 1919 or 1918 when Ed was coming in, and he said, I saw this gentleman walking through uh, Jacksonville down the road, kind of a small little fellow, thought it was a teenager at first, and he had this dowsing rod, and he was going along dowsing for water, and the man was curious, so he stopped him one day, and he said, sir, he said, I don't mean to bother you, but what are you doing? And Ed just gave him this real strange look, John, and he told the man, he said, when I find it, I'll know it. Hmm. And he turned around, kept on heading to Florida. Years later, the man said when Ed kind of got famous and they started talking about Coral Castle, he actually saw a picture of Ed in the newspaper. And he told his son, he said, hey, that's the same man that I saw walking down through Jacksonville. It has to be because I recognize him. So there's a lot of theories on how uh, he actually came into the place. Um, but what he did when he landed um, down near Homestead. Now, Homestead, Florida is about 30 miles south of Miami. You've got Homestead in Florida City. Now, he actually landed in Florida City. What happened was a real estate man was driving around one night. He'd been um, researching land down there. He had his wife and, a, and another woman with him. Well, they're driving along in an old Model T Ford car. You can imagine this. The headlights are shining. Well, it's an old dirt road, John. They're driving along there, and all of a sudden, they see this body laid out in the road. And they were like, wow, man, because this was isolated, just pine trees and swampland, you know, with gators and stuff. <laughs> right. So they pull over, and here's this guy laid out. I mean, he's five foot, 100 pounds. He looks like a child. So, and he's totally out. He's in a coma. Well, they lift him up, put him in the car. They take him to the doctor the next day. He's kind of still in this coma. The doctor checks his body, and he kind of wakes up from the coma, and the doctor tells him, he introduces himself. He says, I'm Ed Leeds Callan, uh, recently coming here from Latvia. And he said, I got here and I was walking towards uh, Miami. And uh, he said, where am I? And they said, well, you're in Florida City. And the doctor told him, he said, Ed, I've got bad news for you. He said, you have tuberculosis. Now, this was 1918, John. When you got tuberculosis, that's this was it. That the was doctor care. told him, he said, yeah, you're, it's a death sentence. The doctor told him, he said, your body is so eaten up with it. He said, you have four to six months to live, and that's it. Ed didn't cry. He didn't look shook. He just kind of said, well, fellas, he said, uh, let me ask you something. He said, is there a junkyard in this in this area? And they looked at him kind of strange, and they said, a junkyard? And they said, yeah, we, we have a junkyard. And he said, well, tomorrow, he said, I want to eat and rest up a little bit, but tomorrow I want to I want to go to the junkyard. So they were kind of like, wow. So they felt sorry for him. Well, they carried him to the junkyard. He gets all these weird parts. He gets a bicycle with no tires, gets this old Model T Ford truck body with nothing in it. He has all this stuff delivered to a certain piece of land. Now, he had been looking for this piece of land, and he again took his dowsing rod out right around this area there where they found him. And he finally came back to him one day, and he said, hey, I found the perfect piece of land. And they said, okay, let's go out and look at it. 
They couldn't figure out why he wanted a piece of land when he's only got four to six months to live. But they didn't want to ask him too many questions because he was a nice fellow and sick and about to die. So they just, you know, let him have his head on this. So they go out to this land, John, and the real estate man says, it says this is it. This is what I want. And the real estate man says, and he knows the area. Mm-hmm. He says, Ed, you have picked the sorriest piece of land in Florida. <laughs> There's only like two or three inches of topsoil. He said, and the rest of it, 4,000 feet down, is nothing but coral stone. And, um, of course, everybody's thinking farming in this time. You know, they don't think about anything else because they're all farmers. And uh, so the farmer pitches in, and he says, yeah, Ed, he says, I'm only asking $10 for the land because it's no good. And he said, it's no good, son, unless you want to farm rocks. And Ed looked at him and he grinned. He said, well, sir, that's what I exactly I plan on doing is farming rocks. <laughs> they looked at each other like, what is this guy coming from, you know? So they, anyway, they said, well, okay, you can have the land. And Ed said he put a little tent up there and everything. He got him some water and uh, a little bit of dried food and everything. And he said he told the real estate man who became friends, he said, come back and check on me in three weeks. And the real estate man said, you're just going to stay out here on this land? There's no electricity. There's no, you know, nothing. He said, just come check on me. Well, they go back, John, in three weeks. The man, the real estate man and his wife, they drive up. It's a Sunday afternoon about 4 o'clock. It's very hot. They get out of the car. As they walk up, they see a tripod, like a pyramid of telephone poles with the chain hanging down in the middle. Now, in this middle is a 10-ton block of stone, coral. They look over to the right, and they see this huge hole dug. Got to remember, he has no tools, no electricity. Now, John, if you've ever made crispy rice crispy cookies, you <laughs> put them in the pan, you flatten them out, you know, and you cut them. Right. That's what this piece looked like. It was cut so perfectly, it looked like the man said laser opticians. And it was a perfectly square, about I'd say about a 12-foot high, probably three foot wide, 10 ton stone hanging. And this is a little, what, five foot man, 100 pounds, that's sick. (laughs) Five foot man, right, got tuberculosis and has cut this out. And they're just going, what? So they asked him, they said, Ed, how did you do this? And he said, well, he said, it's not that hard once you learn how. And then he said, I understand the secret of the Great Pyramid, of Stonehenge, of the Incas, of the Mayans, of the Peruvians. He said, I have solved the science of the of the lost pyramid technology. Wow. And now you got to remember, these guys are just farmers down there, and they're thinking, what? <laughs> so what happens is he tells them, he says, I'm going to build a castle here. you got to remember, he's from Europe. He's just been there to England and seen all these castles and stuff. Now his idea, remember, he's jilted by his girlfriend, so he tells a real estate man, he said, I'm going to build a castle. And once Agnes sees how much I love her that I built her this castle, she's going to come from Latvia and marry me here. And the real estate man was kind of like, well, Ed, you know, I wouldn't be too sure about that. But <laughs> he didn't want to discourage him, you know. So he said, well, son, if that's what you want to do, why we'll just help you any way we can. He starts cutting these stones out, building this pier or this castle in Florida City. Now, during this time, John, he is a research scientist, and he starts developing this ideas about magnets, and he invents what we call today a perpetual motion holder. Now, what he does is he takes a bunch of bar magnets 
or U-shaped magnets, wraps them in copper. Now, this machine that's down at Coral Castle, if, for your listeners, it's about the size of a car tire, okay? And if you remember in the 1920s, those old cars where you had to get out there with the crank and stick the crank in there and crank it from the front? Exactly. Okay? Well, he put a handle like that on this machine. Remember, it's about the size of a car tire. And what happens is you put the handle on it and you spin this machine. And what happens is it puts these magnets in motion, okay? This is kind of hard to describe over the over the airwaves here, but... Um, as as these magnets go in motion, Ed used to say that it's positive and negative um, poles. And when you put the magnets in motion, until you break that cycle, they will always produce energy. Okay? Now, as he's developing this machine, Ed's idea is a lot like Tesla, Nikola Tesla. We've talked about this before, and for those folks out there um, who aren't familiar, Nikola Tesla actually had a car going in the 1930s uh, going 90 miles an hour with an, a, a magnetic machine, much like Ed's, okay? It got destroyed, of course. You know, the government never would give him a patent on it. So Ed's idea is to take this machine, put it in a car like Tesla did, and also he was going to build one that went outside your house, and this radio tower went up, and once it received these magnetic waves, once you put the motion of the machine in motion, it would receive these magnetic waves. You could run your house on it, your cars. Now, when Ed died in 1951, the rockets were just starting to come in. You know, right after World War II, the Germans had invented the rockets. We took that rocket technology. Now, Ed was trying to get the scientists to come down and look at Coral Castle. And what he used to tell them, he wrote it in his little book, and he said, Dear scientists, he said, come down and look at my machine. And he said, you can put this machine in the head of your rocket. You don't need to waste money on gasoline or, or however, you know, rocket fuel that you use because he said this magnetic power will boost your rocket. Excuse me. And he said, you can get up in the morning, fly out to Pluto, go hmm. all over the galaxy, and come back to the Earth. And when you come back, you'll have just as much energy as when you left because the magnets, once they're in motion, they always produce as much energy as they consume. So you're always going to have plenty of energy. Now, his idea, John, was to give this energy away. He felt like people should have free energy. Now, as Ed applies for this patent... It was turned down flatly, I'm sure, right? Turned down. He never received an answer. Well, he kept bugging the patent office about why he couldn't get a patent. Well, not long after his last complaint, these thugs come in... I'd say this was about 1928. He had almost finished building Coral Castle, okay, about 1928. And um, they come in and they try to get the secret of his um, magnetic machine. Well, he won't give it up. So they beat him. They think they've killed him, but he recovers. He was a strong little guy. <laughs> he never tried to get that patent again, and he never talked much about his machine. Now, as he was building the castle in Florida City, there started to get and be a lot more people around him. Well, he wanted privacy. So now he's almost got the castle done. We're talking about 1,100 tons of solid coral pieces. Now, in Coral Castle inside are 25 one-ton rocking chairs. Now, they look, if you're, for your listeners to try to imagine this, they look exactly like Lazy Boys. Of course, they don't have the pull-up footrest, but they're carved in a square shape, and, John, they don't have rocker bottoms like a rocking chair, mm -hmm. but they're cut in a round shape based on the balance of their gravity so that when a person sits in them, they rock 
naturally. And they have no idea what he carved any of this with, do they? They have no idea how he carved it. No electricity, and these things are cut with such precision, they say it would take laser technology today to do this. Well, just so, like the Egyptian pyramids. I mean, he whatever they did, he did. He did find that. Exactly. He was showing them that I know the secrets. So inside this, you have these one-ton rocking chairs. You have a map of Florida that's cut perfectly in coral stone. It looks just like a map of Florida. You have a stone telescope where the North Star falls into the telescope um, crosshairs every night. The North Star never moves. It just wobbles a little bit. He even figured on the wobble, and each night when the North Star falls in the telescope, it moves around into the four pieces of the site. Wow. Now, how do you get precision like that? This guy was quite amazing. Amazing. And there's also the world's largest Valentine table. Now, it weighs 5,000 pounds. Ed used to say, well, when Agnes comes to see me here at Coral Castle, he said, man is forgetful by nature. And he said, I may forget to get her a Valentine's card, but since I have this 5,000-pound Valentine card carved for her, then she'll night when we have when we have dinner she'll always have her Valentine's card, and he said she loves fresh flowers, but I'm a poor man so I can't afford them. So he planted an exora bush right in the middle of the table. He cut a hole in it, put the dirt in it, and that exora bush is still growing today. Wow. Did they find uh, like all the chips from rocks being cut or anything, or was that not there either? And nothing was there. So, I mean, all, all the leftover stuff from cutting them wasn't even there as well as they don't know how he cut it. There's no residue from being cut. Nothing. I mean, he was perfect. And um, as as he was beaten up in Coral Castle in Florida City, he decided to move the castle. So he called, and this is, this is one of the most amazing things. Not only did he build the Coral Castle in Florida City. He moved he it. Called <laughs> up a, right. He calls up a friend of his one day who's in the, the timber moving business. Bob, back in those days, they used to cut these. This was back when they still had these huge ton, ton, ton trees. So they had to have a truck, a logging truck, with the springs heavy enough to cover them. So Ed knew this, so he called his logging friend, and he said, Hey, come uh, to Coral Castle in the morning at 7.30, and I'll fix you breakfast. I want you to do some work for me. So his friend shows up, and they have breakfast, and they get done, and the friend says, Okay, what would you like? Ed says, I want you to back your truck up here. I'm going to put that 30-ton stone there on the truck, and we're going to move it to, to Homestead. <laughs> and the truck driver went, say that again? And Ed said, just back the truck up here and leave and come back in an hour. So the truck driver says, well, okay. So he backs up. He leaves. He comes back in an hour. The 30-ton stone is on the back of the truck. <laughs> and he's like, how in the world could you do that in an hour? Some people have said 30 minutes. Some people an hour. We don't know. Even if it's an hour, I mean, with no equipment, how do you lift a 30-ton stone onto the back of a tall pickup truck? He had no cranes or nothing. I mean, he had that one, that lift, whatever, in the middle of the yard, right? But that was it. He had, okay, here's the thing at Coral Castle. People ask me all the time, okay, well, how do you do it? Well, there's two ways. He either did it with a block and tackle, or he magnetically lifted these blocks, and we'll talk about that in a minute. When I say he did it with a block and tackle, the problem with the block and tackle is, now, at one time, the old-timers told me there was telephone poles down there that were 60 feet tall. Now, that was when they had the old trees, okay? And he said that the block and tackle, though, would only lift 10 tons. 
So let's say he does lift some stones with a 10-ton, but how's he going to lift a 30-ton with only a 10-ton block and tackle? Well, a block and tackle basically only lifts, though, too. It's not going to move something 20, 30 foot in either direction. It's kind of more of a stationary thing. Right, yeah. So how are you going to move it north, south, east, and west? Okay, so now one of the theories is at Florida City, some of the engineers, and, and Christopher Dunn, who's a friend of mine who's written a book called um, The Great Pyramid, it was a power geezer. He talks about these magnetic ley lines that exist around the world. Now, these ley lines are underground. It's almost like an underground spring, or if you can imagine if someone was going to put a cable, an electric cable, you know how we run the telephone cables underground, and that electricity flows down them. Well, just imagine that there's no cable, but it's an imaginary magnetic line. Now, along these lines, and here's what's strange, and um, Ed had these maps, I'm certain, of where he knew these ley lines were because they run strangely under the Great Pyramid, they run under Stonehenge, they run under a lot of the pyramids in Mexico and Central and South America, okay? Well, now, when Ed was moving the castle from Florida, or from, yeah, from Florida City to Homestead, there are people now who believe that he made a surveying error and that one of the reasons he was moving Coral Castle from Florida City to Homestead was that he had found stronger magnetic ley lines that exist in Homestead, okay? Because you can still go to Homestead today, and there are still these weird lines down there, John. In fact, there's a video um, on on Weird Weird America, I think it is, mm-hmm. and they actually show, and I, and I actually participated in this, there's points in Coral Castle where you can stand, and your body is stronger and weaker in those points. Wow. So if these ley lines exist, then the theory that Christopher Dunn has that Ed took his perpetual motion holder, okay, inserted a iron cable underneath the, the holder. When you look underneath Ed's machine, there is a sort of like a place that looks like a cable could have gone, and then you could have clamped it down. Right. Then you run the cable out to where your stone is. You wrap the cable around the stone, and then, now there's this, here's another weird thing. On top of his block and tackle, there's this weird-looking box up there that nobody can figure out. And there are these cables running down from the box, and these cables actually wrap around the stone. So what Christopher Dunn is saying, when Ed got his perpetual motion holder, cranked up that magnetic current, it went out there, and what it was doing was it was putting an anti-gravity field around that stone, and then he would just manipulate his machine and cause it to bring it over into the walls of Coral Castle, or if he didn't have the walls up yet, and he would just move it along this magnetic ley line. That's amazing. And, that, and that's probably exactly what they did with the pyramids, too. It certainly would make sense because, and here's here's the one thing we were talking about and why Coral Castle should be the eighth wonder of the world, because at Coral Castle in the United States, we have the only person in the world's history not only to say that he discovered the lost science of these pyramids and of Stonehenge, he proved it. The stones of Coral Castle speak for themselves. It's uh, well, one of his major accomplishments there too was that, that gate wasn't that nine tons. That's that that is his and and he even considered it his greatest scientific and engineering achievement. Um, yeah, in the east wall, and for your listeners, imagine an axe head 
you know how an axe head is fat at one end and then it gets slim at the cutting end? Right. This gate is shaped a lot like that. It's very uneven. It's three feet wide. It's about 10 foot tall. Very uneven. Now, to get this gate to balance, he had to find the center of its gravity. Then he drilled a hole all the way down it. Now, this hole had to be perfect. I mean, if it was off just a little tiny frog hair, the rod that he runs down there, of course, is going to hit, and it's not going to go all the way to the end. So that hole had to be perfectly drilled, okay? And again, he had no electricity. Well, he drills the hole, runs it down into the wheel bearings of an 1818 Model A truck, okay? So the gate is actually on the truck wheel bearings, and this is what makes it spin. The strange thing is, underneath this stone, he put another stone about the size of a car tire, and I'd say about, about as wide as an apple pie about three or four inches high. Now, this gate worked for 50 years, like until 1986. One year, it kind of tilted and it, and it broke the wheel bearings. So they called the University of Florida, Coral Castle did, and they said, hey, we got this nine-ton gate down here and it quit working, it quit spinning, can you guys come and fix it? Well, the University of Florida guy said, hey, man, you're talking to the engineering department, we got PhDs, we can do, <laughs> we can fix anything. Well, they drive down there with their PhDs, John, thinking, hey, this will be a piece of cake. When they get to Coral Castle and look, they they are they can't believe it. Their breath is taken away because they start examining the gate, and they say, to find the center of gravity today, you would need laser technology. And we're not even sure we could find it then with laser technology. They never could fix the gate. Well, they got very angry, got in their cars, and left. <laughs> Coral Castle had to call in a construction company with two 80-ton cranes. They wrapped chains around the stone, were able to lift it. Well, then they found this weird stone that it had placed underneath the stone, underneath the wheel bearing there, and it had broken. Well, they examined it, and it looked strange, so they sent it to the geology department at the University of Florida, and they said, can you tell us what the material of this stone is because it was supporting nine tons, and it's so thin we don't understand how it did it. Well, the geology department at the University of Florida and I'm not making this up now. This is all, you can go to the museum at, at Coral Castle, and you'll see this. And on the stone, the, the placard says, the little sign says, of unknown origin. Okay? Hmm. The geologist said, this is not a meteorite, but we cannot find the materials of this stone that exist on the earth. No, that, try to explain that one. I mean, that's <laughs> that's kind of really out there. It's... Yeah, I mean, and I'm not, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I sometimes I hesitate to tell that story about the stone because people go, you know, it just that's just too much for some people. Oh, I think that's but, one of the best parts, actually, because that really shows you he knew some secrets. Yeah, and, you know, and I'm not saying maybe he dug the stone from Lotby and carried it with him, or I, I just don't understand where it came from or how it came to be. But um, that's just... That's just a mystery that you'll find at Coral Castle, and, and we're just we're just scratching the surface. Well, this place is the... full of mysteries. I mean, little things. I mean, like, wasn't it true that he only worked from midnight to 6 in the morning, too? Um, thank you for bringing that up. I, I get so carried away. Keep interjecting those things because <laughs> I forget about that. Yeah, when he's building the stone, or when he's building Coral Castle, he would work from midnight till 6, and... People actually were so curious as to what he was doing, they would get on their bellies and just low crawl like alligators trying to sneak up at night, be 3 o'clock in the morning. 
And they used to tell me, the old-timers said, Joe, you couldn't get within 40 to 50 yards of that place. Ed would pop up on the wall, and he'd say, how are you all doing tonight? I can't go to work until you leave. And he might sing a song or play his harmonica or something, and they were just like spooked him, you know, because how did he know we were there? They'd turn around and leave. And it was researched and it was known and written that nobody ever caught Ed at work. Wasn't there a story about two kids or something actually saw him floating in stone? Or isn't there something like that? That that is absolutely true. Now, Ed loved children. And he was, he, I think he was a child at heart. And the story was told that three children were coming by there one night. They used to go and play around Coral Castle like on a Friday night. And they'd keep you know, they'd leave their house and sneak out and, and go go see Uncle Ed, see if they could catch him at work. Well, one night they snuck up on there about three in the morning. Now Ed had to have known their presence because you never snuck up at Coral Castle without him knowing it. I feel certain that he knew they were there, and he allowed them to watch him work. And if you remember the story I told you about how the theory is that he grabbed the stone with the with the iron cable, right. the kids came up about the time. And it was it was a dark night. It was not really moonlit. All they could see was this dark figure of the stone. And they said it was floating. He said the kids said that he floated them like hydrogen balloons over the wall down into the castle. Now, uh, one of the one of my friends pointed this out. And he said, "Think about it now. It was at night. They probably saw the stone floating, but they would not have seen the cable." And I said, "Oh, that's a good point." Then I had a lady contact me. Her her name was Sharon Bullard. She was a truck driver. She heard me on one of the radio shows one night, and she called me, and she said, Joe, I just want you to know, here was another strange Bullard involved with the Coral Castle. She said, my father was a child at Coral Castle down there in Homestead, and he was one of the children who actually saw Ed floating those stones. Wow. So that story was verified for me. That's that's absolutely amazing. I mean, there was really no explanation for how Ed did this. Not a normal explanation that science would accept. No, and and the sad, strange thing is that, and and I didn't think of this, but one of my friends said, you know, Coral Castle should be a university. All of the colleges now, University of Florida doesn't do it. They don't send any of their engineering students down there. Um, there's only a few people in the world who are actually studying what Ed did. None of them are from Florida. Um, we've talked about it many, many times. Why don't we have, you know, somebody of of because you know I'm just a I'm just a, a writer. I, I'm just a journalist who who loves the story, but I don't have the scientific credentials, John, and I've never pretended to. In fact, the only reason I wrote the book uh, Waiting for Agnes about the story of Coral Castle is because I wanted to tell the story of the man's life. Like I said, I'm not a scientist, I'm just a layperson with a lot of passion and energy and love for the place, but I don't have the credentials to, to go in and study it um, like, you know, people like engineers like Christopher right. Dunn. You're just a researcher. You went into the history, the legend, lore, the truth, how it was built, things like that. You're, you don't, you're not the scientist. You can't <laughs> no, determine no. why it was done. <laughs> No, and and you know that's not my part in this in this story. Um, all I'm hoping to do is attract someone out there. You know, maybe there's somebody listening tonight that says, "Hey, you know, I know a person that uh, is good in that kind of thing." And you know, I mean, here's the thing, John. We have 
a machine that will solve the world's energy problems. Now, gasoline right now is about $3.90 in Florida a gallon, and um, it was Ed's dream to bring that energy source to the world. We have the machine, and Ed was so frustrated, John, that he left the plans of how to build a machine. They're both collecting dust. Well, isn't that mag- the, isn't there a magnetic generator still there? It's still sitting there. Is it still functioning? Do, I mean, does anyone know? Or is there it- there are parts of it that are missing. But uh, someone told me that about two years ago, a couple of guys got really interested, and they went and looked at it, saw the parts that were missing. They brought in their own parts, p- filled these missing parts in, actually put a light bulb up, cranked his machine up, and it lit the bulb. Well, you think that would be like on the front pages of the paper. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Nobody nobody ever reports on it. And when they do report on it, John, they make it out. And ironically, and, and this would pull Ed out of his grave, when he was building Coral Castle, you know, there was tourist traps in Florida. You know, there was alligator places and places that try to sell you, you know, Tupelo honey or you know, Florida was full of tourist traps, and ironically, Ed said, I'm going to build a place that will never be known as a tourist trap. I'm going to build a scientific instrument that proves all of my love for the astronomy. He was a big astronomer, all these things, and now, ironically, they write of his place as a joke. Hmm. They make out like, oh, he was just a lovesick maniac, and they never talk about the scientific accomplishment. Well, they did that with Tesla for the longest time, too. It's just now that we're realizing what a genius he was. Right. And here's another strange thing. Now, when Ed, what happened was he gets his castle almost built in Florida City. Then he decides to move it. So he spends 20 years in Homestead finishing it. Now, about 1940, he gives his first tour. Now, in the east wall is what he called his planet wall. And in the planet wall are exact stone replicas of Mars, Saturn, and then the Earth in the, or I'm sorry, the Moon in the crescent shape. Okay, that crescent shaped Moon weighs 18 tons. Wow. Okay, and it's featured on the on the front cover of my book. And here's the weird thing. Now, you know, it was a couple of years ago. I believe it was President Clinton who came on the news and said, uh, "We now believe there was life on Mars." You know, that was when that rover thing had discovered there was probably water and all this. Well, Ed's version of Mars weighs about, I think, five tons, six tons. It's just a round ball sitting up on the wall there. Well, when Ed was given the tour, he actually had planted an air plant. He dug a, drilled a little hole in the, in the Mars um, globe up there and put this little air plant. And he told the people on the tour, he said, I'm putting this air plant up here to represent that I believe that there was life on Mars at one time. Wow. So this was 1940, okay? He, he was way, way ahead of his time. <laughs> you know, and the and the, weirdly, the funny thing is there was people who told me, and I've always loved that story, in 1938, you remember when the, the War of the Worlds, when Orson Welles did the radio thing? Yeah. Remember that? And they actually, everybody went crazy. They, they were telling me that some of the people down there actually were afraid of Ed because they remembered that he had talked about the Martians and his <laughs> life on Mars. And they said that they actually went by the castle there kind of on a witch hunt at night that night. 
uh, trying to find him to wonder if he was, you know, calling down these um, Martians. Well, he had, he had a lot of secrets. I mean, wasn't there something, was it in the King's Chamber and the Great Pyramid, too, that something it correlated to what Ed had done or something? Okay. I don't recall exactly, but wasn't there something between okay. the two? You know, this is the weird thing. I want, I'm going to tell you something, and I, like I told you and I've talked before, I, I hope I'm the most humble person in the world. I think the one thing that I discovered um, at Coral Castle, in the north wall there, his 30-ton stone, now, when he was building this, he called it his king stone. Now, there's a weird-looking inverted V-shaped stone on top of it, of the 30-ton stone. Now, Ed used to tell people, they'd ask him, well, what does that inverted V up there mean? And he said, well, that's my king stone, so every king has to have a crown. So I crowned it, the stone there with the V-shaped stone. Well, I was studying the Great Pyramid one day, and I looked. Now, here's the weird thing. The 30-ton stone is in the exact north center of the of Coral Castle, okay? If you go to the King's Chamber inside of the Great Pyramid and look in the perfect center of the north of the pyramid, you will see that inverted-shaped V-stone. Hmm. It matches it. And there's it, when I say this, there's even two little small block stones that look like um, children's building blocks underneath it. And there's, there's three or four of them, and Ed matched it perfectly. And I actually took a picture of that uh, from the Great Pyramid and matched it to the stone um, at Ed's place. And I, and I placed it in the book so that you can see it is the exact replica. And he had a and correlation people, to Stonehenge or something, too, didn't Wasn't there something there a, that was like that, too? There's a Stonehenge stone down there that's actually taller than the Stonehenge stones, and it has the T-shape on top to represent Stonehenge. He not only knew how to do this, he was he was kind of almost mocking, like, look, they did it, I can do it, I can even do it better. I can do it taller and I can do it better. And, and he also told, I'm sorry, he also told someone, look, if there's ever a nuclear explosion and everything is forgotten, all language, here's how smart he was. Someone can walk into Coral Castle, look at my stones, if they'll really pay attention and, and it took me 20 years of studying to find that correlation of the Great Pyramid stone to his stone because he's making you study. You have to study everything, and that's how I found that. What he wanted to tell people was if all the language is lost, you can walk here. The stones speak for themselves. Hmm. I'm telling you in stone language, here was a man who understood the secret. And, and, and no, did he write anything down? I mean, he had notes, but I mean, as far as knowledge, nothing was written down in any way, was it? Yeah, yeah, he did. He he wrote a pamphlet. He wrote a couple of pamphlets. Um, they're very, very hard to discern. He wrote a pamphlet on his perpetual motion holder. He wrote a pamphlet talking about the human body and how we're actually run by magnets. He believed that the magnetic force was what kept the whole world going and even our bodies. Um, and there's booklets that you can buy on Amazon. Um, since uh, since I did those shows, they now sell these books on Amazon. They're very hard to understand, almost like trying to read Einstein. And there's nothing there. A lot of people have, have gotten his perpetual motion holder book and tried to tried to redo the machine from that, uh, and they've been unsuccessful with it because it's very hard to determine. You'd almost have to go down, look at the machine, and redo it yourself instead of trying to read his books. Um, but he actually wrote one book called A Book in Every Home, and it actually tells you how to date your girlfriend, how to brush your teeth, 
how to walk, how to smile. Uh, <laughs> he had some real bizarre things. So he had a sense of humor too. It sounds like he he did. He had a, everybody loved it. Uh, nobody ever heard a cuss word out of him. He was always friendly, never never in a bad mood. And um, right after he was beaten up, um, everybody sort of surrounded him to protect him um, because they they loved him. He was uh, he was a well known figure. And you know, one thing I uh, there's so many things in this. It, it, we won't be able to cover it in one show tonight. Hopefully, we'll do some <laughs> more. But you know, down there, Ed used to wear brogans, the old farmer type shoes with leather soles. Mm-hmm. Now you got to remember he's working on coral, which is jagged, which would wear out a pair of shoes quickly. Well, Ed was, I mean, real miser. People have asked me how he made a living, and um, he he grew his own garden. There was no taxes in those days, so he didn't have taxes to worry about, and he had charged the dime to to do his tour, so he saved a little money. Um, but one day he got tired of wearing his shoes out, so he took the bumper off an old Model A Ford truck, carried it down to the shoemaker, and he said the guy's name was David. And he said David. He said, how about making me a pair of soles for my shoes out of this iron so I don't have to wear my shoes out? <laughs> and the shoemaker thought he was crazy. He said, what? And he had said, please, can you do it? And the shoemaker said, well, I'm not really set up to work with iron, but I'll try it. So anyway, those shoes are still down in Coral Castle with the iron soles on them. Now, a friend of mine brought this up on, on one of the shows we were doing, and he said, and, and some of the old-timers had told me this, but I kind of dismissed it. But they said, hey, look, that magnetic ley line was so powerful down there that Ed had to wear those shoes when he was working, when he got his generator going or whatever, so that he didn't float off of the ground. And okay. I was like, what? So I had never thought about that. Oh, that's that's true. I never... Like they have magnetic shoes in all the space movies so they don't fall off the ship. He was trying to do the same thing. The same thing with, with you know, bumpers off of a, of a... And here's the wild thing. When you go into Coal Castle, he's even got a barbecue smoker made out of the transmission from a Ford truck. Does he? And it was the first steamer. It was the first steam cooker in history. Uh, the guy was absolutely amazing. And, and what, what's terrible is so few people know about him. I know there's a lot of listeners out there that have, this is the first they've ever heard of the Coral Castle. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we had kind of forgotten to mention it. We, we, well, I get so curious when I'm telling the story. People have asked me, how did you find out about the story of Coral Castle? Well, I was working at Lake City Community College here. I was a director of information services. This was back in September 1984. Well, I love the old shows. I'm a baby boomer. I watched, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, The Twilight Zone, all those wonderful old old shows. And uh, I was watching the old In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, which documented, you know, the weird and the strange things. Well, this show came, this was 1984, but this show was, was actually produced in 1978, I found out later. Leonard Nimoy actually went down to Coral Castle and made a report on it. And the In Search Of thing uh, covered Coral Castle. Well, I'm sitting here. I'm probably 40 years old at the time. I'm a native Floridian, never heard of Coral Castle in my life. How is it possible? Well, I had an uncle working in Miami at the time, and I called him, and I said, you know, Nick, is there anything left of Coral Castle? Is it is it still functioning or what? And he said, man, with your love of pyramids, he said, you, you won't believe this place. He said, it's just like when he walked out. Everything is pristine and perfect. Well, I jumped in my car the next day, 
John, <laughs> flew down there. It took me eight hours because I'm up in North Florida. I'm on up in Georgia. That's uh-huh. where I get this swamp accent from. <laughs> uh, Finoki Swamp. And uh, so I drove down there. And when I walked up, before I walked into the to the Coral Castle, there's a big iron door. And there is etched in the iron, and it's perfectly carved into this iron door, is the sun and the earth and the, the rotation of the earth around the sun. And Ed used to say all the scientists are wrong in the way they believe the earth rotates, or the sun, yeah, the earth rotates around the sun. They should come to Coral Castle, look at my telescope, and they'll understand where they made their mistake. Well, this, this is etched right into the door there. I, the weirdest thing hit me. There's 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 a magnetic presence, an electric presence, or something. When you go down there, it feels like you're on the moonscape because those big stones are gray, and the wind's blowing, and it's quiet. And I just thought I I could in my mind see in black and white Rod Serling, you know, step <laughs> out of the castle and go, Hey Joe, come on in here. You, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> so I took a moment and just kind of meditated before I walked in. And when I walked in, there's a three-ton triangular-shaped stone. That's the entrance stone, and you can press it with one finger, John. Now it does; it wasn't torn up like the nine-ton gate, and it still spins, just like I mean, it weighed nothing. That's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's no everyone should know about this too. That's why I'm just so shocked about that people just don't know about it. But you grew up in Florida, and you didn't even know about it. Listen, I have begged the governors, every governor since the last thirty years, no governor. No mayor, no senator, no official will go down. I mean, I just told him, I said, look, go down, recognize Coral Castle. It'll bring the media. I mean, I don't care if I sell another book. I just want to say, come and look what we have. Look what the United States, look what immigrants have done. Here's what a little guy from Latvia with no education, poor health, he solves the secret of the Great Pyramid Stonehenge, builds a castle, and it's forgotten. Has there been anyone that's done any solid research, scientific research, not research like investigative research like you, but, I mean, you know, any type of scientist or anything that's done anything? Yeah, people, I'd say one of the best researchers is, is my friend Christopher Dunn, and he's written quite extensively on Coral Castle. And it's, uh, like I said, he has a book called, uh, I think it's called The Power Geese of the Power Plant, talking about the Great Pyramid. And, and in the book, um, he explains that he believes that Ed's perpetual motion holder uh, was the key to moving these stones, uh, and I think he's I think he's ex, ex, he's perfectly right on this. Um, and there's several other people that are looking into it um, who aren't quite as famous as him. But if we just had a concentrated effort, if we had ten Christopher Dunns, you know, if if he had a uh, say a cadre of people working with him, um, what could be done? I mean, I don't know why we're not producing and promoting uh, this machine. Exactly. I mean, it's well. Plus, it, it'd be free energy, though. So, I mean, <laughs> free energy that right that we know that there's certain people in this country that don't want us to have free energy. Exactly. Just imagine what free energy would do for our world. It would solve so much. You know, those places in Africa and all throughout the world and these little corners where they don't have anything. They could actually have energy. They could. It, it would just change their lives. Yeah, I mean, you, you you imagine you go out and drill a well and, and pump the water for free. Exactly. It's to those ridiculous. people, like you said, in, in Africa that don't have access to good, clean water. 
I like that magnetic generator he has. I can't believe that somebody hasn't gone there and solved that and tried to make it functioning, but obviously you, you can't, just like when Ed tried to do it. If someone tried to do it, they'd be stopped. The only way to do it, it's going to take a backyard inventor. He's going to have to go down, look at it, not say anything to anybody, and do it in his backyard quietly. It will never be done by a corporation. Of course, they're you know they control the oil and everything, and they want us driving you know, paying you know well well you know I got to be careful how I talk here, but <laughs> um, you know there's people who want us dependent on oil. Oh, exactly. That's <laughs> we could do a whole other show just about that, and actually we have. <laughs> right, and you know here's the thing about it. Ed was concerned about pollution back in his day. I mean, he hmm. said one day we're going to have so many automobiles that, that it's going to ruin the atmosphere. I mean, he was the ultimate environmentalist. And, and I mean, he wasn't this fanatic, you know, tree hugger or anything like that. He just had common sense. When, when Joe did all this, what was there, 11,000 tons in total? Is that what it was? 1,100 tons. 1,100. Was there like, is there a huge pit next to it where he quarried all this? Yeah, now there's one pit left, John. That, that's a good question. There's one pit left there, uh, and they left it there to show you um, how or where the area was. that They called it his quarry place. They filled in most of the other um, places with dirt. They just covered it in because they were afraid people would fall in it and you know they'd be sued and everything. But they did leave one area there. As you walk up to Coral Castle, it's on the right, and it dips down way down, probably I'd say five feet from the top of the ground. Is that outside the castle grounds? Outside the castle ground. Mm -hmm. Okay, so isn't that a big question mark there, too, how he not only quarried those, cut them, but got them in the castle? <laughs> oh, oh, what I, what I picture, John, is I picture being on the outside there as one of those children were walking around there and seeing him down in that pit and that stone floating up and over because it's got to float up five feet to get to the normal ground level and then right on up and over into the castle that's, now don't you know that was a site that's amazing as far as the the pit that's left there are there quarry marks you know like they say in a oh, lot of yes. the tombs there's they say they can't find quarry marks or but i mean has he got machinery well, marks or <laughs> here's the weird thing you can see where each stone was popped out of the ground you can see there's white lines there okay mm-hmm but here's the weird thing. There's no quarry marks on the stones themselves. Okay. Now, there's a couple of lines on there where it looks like he could have stuck a huge chisel under there, you know, and popped them or something. But it's only, um, there's, it, it's not a cut mark. It's just a, it's a long, like a long chisel place. Isn't quarry, uh, or coral, I'm sorry, uh, very fragile stone, too? I'm not, I'm not real familiar with it, but isn't it one of those ones that breaks real easy? It's, listen, it's very brittle, and a lot of people have commented on how was he able to cut and lift all these things. You can actually take a hammer and just pop a hammer on it, and it's so fragile it will break. So to be able to cut these huge stones without breaking them, I mean, you see, with the, with the Great Pyramid, you've got that granite. Well, you know, granite's almost indestructible. Right. But with coral... Yeah, you tap it with the right hammer, and you're done. It's breaking. So, I mean, and it's I not only it. amazing how he quarried it. It's a matter of transporting it without breaking it, installing it in place without breaking it, the whole thing. Yeah, 
and and you think about a thirty ton stone. That's thirty tons. And I'll tell you a funny story. What happened to him in World War Two? Now it was about nineteen forty three. Now you got to remember, Ed is from Latvia, one of the border states there, borders Russia. Okay. Of course, we even though we were partners with Russia during World War Two, they didn't trust us. We didn't trust them. So, Ed builds this. I want to say he goes up about 12 feet from Coral Castle, and he puts these copper wires, a grid wire, almost like squares of wire, copper, and he would suspend them from poles, okay? Now, and, and I'll tell you a strange story. Um, B.J. Cathy, who wrote a book called The Harmonic Grid, he figured out the grid that the UFOs use. Mm-hmm. It's a propulsion thing that used these magnetic ley lines, the same thing. Well, there are stations, B.J. Cathy is from New Zealand, and there are stations in New Zealand and in Australia that have these stained copper wire grid-like things that people believe that the actual governments are communicating with the UFOs using these grids, okay? Hmm. Now, Ed had this exact same grid up above Coral Castle. Well, in 1943... This thing looks suspicious, so several people called the police department and said, hey, you need to go check out Ed. What's this weird copper wire stuff up there? So they went to check it out, and uh, Ed was a little bit embarrassed, and he said, well, fellas, you know, y'all know I'm kind of cheap. I have to do everything on the side. What he had done was he had put this crystal radio set up, and through this copper wire antenna-type thing, if you want to call it, he could reach radio stations like a ham operator all over the world, okay? Huh. Okay. So the police, once they saw this, they said, wow, okay, so they left him alone. Well, then later on, as we were doing this research, uh, and I was talking with with, uh, some friends of Captain Kathy's, they said, hey, what if Ed had been able to communicate with the UFOs through that grid, that copper grid? Maybe that was the real reason for it. Actually, I was going to ask you that, too, kind of uh, considering what our show covers. But have it, has anybody ever said that they think Ed had help from aliens, you know, like they say Stonehenge and the pyramids and everything? Are there any theories that Ed had help that way? Well, let me let me say this to answer that question. Down there, there is what Ed used to call his altar stone, okay? Um, and it's a weird-looking stone. It has all these conch shells embedded in it, and in the center of it, is this weird looking, and like you and I were talking about earlier, there's a, a face there that many people call it an alien face. There's only two, um, two little nostril holes, a slit for the mouth, and sort of weird looking eyes, okay? And the strange thing is the alien face looks across where the Stonehenge stone stands. Hmm. That's interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm not saying, you know, I have to be careful. I I I would just be, it would be guesswork, you know. Right. But it is a strange-looking face. And I was thinking, okay, was he talking about aliens with the face? And was he looking at the Stonehenge stone saying, hey, that's where the secrets came from? It's hard to say. I mean, they always say aliens helped build the pyramids. But in reality, if the pyramids were built like Ed was with this same type of technology too. You wouldn't have need alien help. You could have done it you yourself. You could have done it yourself. That's correct. It uh, kind of leaves you open for discussion there. I mean, as far as that, there's and, two and different think, trains of thought on that one. 
I think that's the important thing. I don't think that we should make a statement and say, hey, it's definitely this or it's definitely that. Because when you say that, you put yourself in a corner. Right. Well, yeah, actually, when it comes down to it, I always say this, too. You can't definitely say. I mean, it's just not possible to say this is what happened because <laughs> you, you you got nothing to back it up with. You can't prove it. <laughs> right. And plus, really, at this point, nobody knows. So why should we make that definite statement? And I think that, that if we do make that, that it hurts our research work because then we become so involved and so obsessed with that one idea that we close our minds to anything else. Exactly. Hey, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, when we were talking about Ed kind of had a sense of humor before. Uh, you want to tell the story about his bell, how you had to ring it? I know the whole thing, but I, you want to talk about that? <laughs> oh, oh, and that was that was funny. There's a sign, and it and it's still down there at Coral Castle. Now, remember, everything came from a junkyard, so he took this transmission housing out of an old Ford truck and put a bell ringer in it, and um, it just has a little rope handle out there, and, and the sign says, ring bell twice, okay? And down at the bottom there, it says, if you ring it, or I'm not sure if it says that, but he used to say that on the tour. He used to say, okay, I told you to ring it twice. If you ring it once... Or if you ring it three times, I will not come out and give you a tour. <laughs> yeah. You had to ring it as I told you. So it was a little bit of a control freak, we'd call him today, I think. I like that. I think that's funny. Well, yeah. uh, we're getting near the end here, Joe. Do you want to give out, uh, do you have a website? or How about your book? We haven't even talked about the name of your book and where people can buy it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah, the, the title of the book is called Waiting for Agnes. And um, I actually have a website. Um, it's www. just like the book waitingforagnes.net. And we'll put a, we'll actually have a link on the show right to your book too when uh, when the show airs. Right, and um, you know anybody can. Uh, my phone number is on that that website. Also, if people don't do computers or if they get in there and they get confused or lost or something, they can just call me. I, I'm I'm free to talk with people and. Um, answer their questions sometimes and uh you know it's, it's kind of like mayberry here yeah you're one of the brave ones you put your phone number out there they, you're, yeah, you're really asking for it well let me tell you uh i have had some weird phone calls but at the same time i've also spoken with people that i mean i that the phone calls that i get that are weird that are one percent and it's worth it to talk to 99 percent of the people just like you who are interested in this thing and i've sort of given my life to this anyway um, so I love doing it or I wouldn't do it. Exactly. And we'll talk to you more about this. And like I was telling you off air, I plan on making my way out to the Coral Castle this summer and I'm going to look you up and we're going to do some uh, live recording right from the Coral Castle. And that would be beautiful. And when you get down there, you'll feel that energy and we'll be able to put that energy through these lines. Um, because I don't know when you go down there for people like us that have the passion for it. And when you see it and feel those, when you put your hands on those stones, 30 tons, and to know that one man, one man figured this thing out, cut those by his hand or wherever, we don't know, mm -hmm. uh, we, we're we touching a history that I've not been to the pyramids, I've not been to Stonehenge, but I've been to the man who understood them. Well, exactly. Why... why? 
waste the money to go to Egypt to go. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but my gosh, go to Florida first. It's it's right here, and it's the same type of technology. It, I mean, it is. And plus, you can let your kids run wild in there. They can go in there and sit in all those 20, uh, 25 one-ton walking chairs, and they don't hurt a thing. <laughs> kind of like Flintstone but, furniture, isn't it? <laughs> okay, a great analogy. Great analogy. It's a Flintstone place. And the funny thing is, now, 1992, Hurricane Andrew flies in. They're, they said that it destroyed the actual um, wind measuring machines down there. They mm-hmm. think those winds could have been 250 miles an hour. Coral Castle was the only place that was not destroyed. It didn't even phase it. <laughs> didn't even phase it. And Ed used to say, now this is, you're talking about a sense of humor. People used to ask him, and he said, I'll tell you what, I dare any Florida hurricane to blow up against my walls. They will lose every time. <laughs> Boy, that, and that's tempting fate. <laughs> and there was an article. In fact, I cut it out. In fact, I used it in the book, um, in the front part of the book there, where it talks about the newspaper article that said, uh, the hurricane blew up against Ed's walls and did lose. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know, so just, I mean, the guy's like he was talking to us from the grave, you know. That's pretty cool. Well, in closing here, Joe, you have anything uh, else you'd like to add? just want to say, John, thank you so much for your consideration, for your same passion that I have. I want to just thank all those listeners out there for taking their time uh, to listen to us tonight, to hear this story. Um, I'm just always proud to know that there's still people left like you that care enough to speak with people like me. I mean, I'm just a little guy here in Florida, just like you, you know, never made any money on this. Don't care if I ever make any money on it. It's just the passion of living for something that we know people will love and enjoy. Exactly. Just getting the information out there so people have it. Yeah, and their children. Our children should be proud. America is at a time right now where we need um, we need to be building back up. We need to say, hey, if this little man can come in and do this, let's be confident. Let's don't let let's don't be, you know, intimidated by any big countries that outdo us that China, India, I mean we've got the go power. We've got the stuff that can do it. And we need to get our confidence back, and we need to say, hey, a guy can build a castle. I can do anything. Very well said, actually. <laughs> okay, Joe, well, we're going to let you go here. and uh, Thank you, we're gonna, John. We're going to talk to you again, too, because I know you didn't even touch a, <laughs> a half of what you got to talk about here. <laughs> no, if, if, you're, if your listeners will put up with us again, man, we'll, we'll run through this again and hit on some stuff that's uh, amazing. And, again, I want to thank you for, for having me, too. Okay, thank you, and have a great night. All right, that was Joe Ballard. We'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. You're listening to Thresholds Radio on UFO-Info.com. All right, we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back with two brand new shows next week, Friday nights from 10 to 11, theedgeonair.com or UFO-Info.com on Sunday nights at 730. See you then.